Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome back to New Books in Latino Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm David James Gonzalez, the host of this conversation, and I'm pleased to be speaking with Romeo Guzman, Stacey Macias, and Daniel Morales about their new anthology, East of East, The Making of Greater El Monte, published by Rutgers University Press in 2020. Romeo Guzman received his PhD in Latin American history from Columbia University. From 2016 to 2020, he was an assistant professor at California State University, Fresno, where he founded and directed the Valley Public History Initiative. With Caribbean Fragosa, uh, Guzman is co-director of the South El Monte Arts Posse and co-director of Boom California. Beginning in the fall of 2020, Guzman will join the history faculty at Claremont Graduate University. Stacy Macias is an assistant professor in the Department of Women's, Gender, and Sexuality Studies at California State University, Long Beach. She earned a PhD in Women's Studies from UCLA. Her research and teaching are in feminist of color knowledge production, feminist transnational activisms, and queer of color cultural politics, including queer femme aesthetics, butch femme desire, and queer of color counterpublics. She grew up in South El Monte, California, and is co-founding member of the Los Angeles-based Tongues, a queer, lesbian, and bisexual women of color project and design. Daniel Morales is from Azusa, California, and is an assistant professor of history at James Madison University, soon to move to Virginia Commonwealth University. He earned his PhD in history from Columbia University and BA from the University of Chicago. His research focuses on the history of migration between Latin America and the United States, including the immigrant Harrisonburg Public History Project. His upcoming book, Entre Aquí y Allá, Creating the Political Economy of Transnational Mexican Migration, 1900-1942, examines the creation of transnational migratory networks across Mexico and the United States in the 20th century. All right. Hello, Romeo, Stacy, and Daniel, and welcome to New Books in Latino Studies. 
Thank you. Hello. Thank Thanks you very much. much. Well, it's great to have all three of you uh, with us. And, and the three of you just represent really, I mean, a small sample of the tremendous amount of work and uh, contributors uh, to uh, this anthology. Uh, so uh, I guess where I'd like to begin is with the origins of the project. And uh, I'll turn to you, uh, Romeo, as one of the co-editors. Um, your other editors are Caribbean Fragosa, right? Alex uh, Cummings and Ryan Reft. Uh, if you can tell us a bit, uh, just to get us started on on how this this really kind of big and uh, uh, project came together. Yeah, so it's kind of a long story. Now, I guess I'll start at the beginning, um, which is that the book really originates from the Sotel Monte Arts Posse. And the Sotel Monte Arts Posse is a loose collection of artists, writers, educators, uncles, tias, cousins, that are interested in essentially doing social arts practice. So um, we're making art with and for community, and most importantly, using arts to think about our place and how we navigate place and who has ownership to place. So uh, so that's all to say that w the, the story is very simple, is that SMAP was founded in 2010 by Carmen Fragosa, who's my partner, and since then her and I have co-edited it together, um, or co-directed it together, and, and a re really simple thing happens. In 2012, El Monte is celebrating its centennial anniversary, and as part of that centennial anniversary, as part of celebrating 100 years, um, one of the big myths or the big ideas of the city is that it's the end of the Santa Fe Trail, right? So for the last hundred years, it's promoted this myth, it's sold this myth, and it's told this story about El Monte's place in the West, about El Monte's place um, in California. And we were really sort of troubled by that, by this idea that the history of El Monte could be sort of codified or, or reduced to one single origin story, right? Um, and we can talk more about why that was problematic. But for us, uh, we knew that, A, that that history was very narrow. Uh, we soon found out that it was not just narrow, but historically incorrect. And what we did is we used that starting point, 2012, this 10-year anniversary, as a sort of entry point to sort of tell a new history um, and to essentially build this project, which was called, and at its origins, East of East, Mapping Community Narratives, in El Monte and Sotel Monte. And this project was really a public history project. And it was unique because it was a collaboration between SEMAP and La Casa del Hijo Laduisote, which is an archive in Mexico City. And the founder of La Casa Project is Diego Flores Magón, who's a good friend of ours. And there was a couple different connections here. One was that, um, you know, Ricardo Flores Magón gave a famous speech in El Monte in 1917. And he wasn't in El Monte a long time, but he was there for a little bit. So in some ways, right, this history of this radical anarchist in El Monte provided a different entry point from, say, the pioneers from this white narrative, uh, from this very nationalist perspective. But the other really important thing was that even though we were doing different things in different places, we were both sort of wrestling with similar questions. For SMAP, the big question was, how do we use the arts to think about place? How do we democratize access to the arts? How do we democratize access to public space? And for Diego at La Casa, he was essentially taking uh, Enrique Flores Magón's archive, using it to reactivate a place that had been deserted, right? Um, and really thinking about how do we create a new archive? So for him, the question was, we have the, you know, he has these historical papers and he's going to build an archive. And how does he create an archive that's alive? That's basically not, that's sort of going against the bureaucracy of an archive. So for him, the question was, what are the radical possibilities of an archive? So what we did, and this was kind of cool, we applied to a grant from LA City Department of Cultural Affairs. At the time, they had this really cool grant where 
if you were an artist in LA, you could you could apply for money to go travel abroad and do an art project abroad. And if you were an artist, an international artist, um, you could apply to come to LA to work with an organization in LA to do some sort of art project. So we pitched to LA City Department of Cultural Affairs an art project that essentially involved an arts collective and an archive in Mexico City. And the idea was that we were going to build a new archive using storytelling and we're going to reimagine what an archive is and how an archive works. Um, and again, using this 1917 point as a point of departure and as a point of entry into this sort of history of El Monte. So that's kind of the origins of the project. And I can talk a little bit more about um, how it evolves, but perhaps that's a good place to start. Yeah, no, great. Thank you for that. I mean, I'm really fascinated by the sense that this is, you know, this art collective is where this uh, originates um, and what brings so many of you all together. Um, can you just talk a bit more? I mean, there are, as, as far as if I counted correctly, 31 contributors uh, to this anthology. Um, there's roughly 31, I think about 31 short essays as well. I don't think that accounts for it. That doesn't account for the introduction. Um could you just add a bit more about, uh, so is, I mean, essentially you can kind of explain, so is that this grant, did you use this grant, you know, to essentially create a call, you know, for people to contribute or again, how did you essentially cast this net and, and get 31 people all committed to, you know, adding something to the history of, uh, of Greater Almonte? Yeah. So that's a really good question. So what happened is Diego Flores Magón and Fordan and Ciso represented La Casa and myself, Caribbean, and Jennifer Antria were some app. And we actually got lucky in the sense that my mom was renting a house at that time period. She lives in it now. And the renters were going to move out. So there was this month period where the house was going to be empty. So we essentially lived together for four weeks. Uh, the homies from La Casa and the Samap homies. And our, our kid was born. Aura was born. So Aura was living with us too. Um, and that first four weeks was really the origin to the project. But the project evolved and grew for the next eight years. And what we did is throughout the process, we ended up developing a model for public history. But one of the ways in which I can sort of talk about how it is that we got contributors is that we would have an event about something that we knew. So, for example, we would have an event about um, the barrios, right, which Danny will talk about. And then we would collect oral histories and we would maybe give a talk or host a conversation. And as we started building this archive, we started finding stories that we either knew about or that when you had to be written out. And then we started inviting folks to contribute based on the material that we had. So in some ways, the process of inviting collaborators in many ways grew with the archive. As we started finding more stories, we started asking people if they would contribute. And then usually what would happen um, is once people did write an essay, right? So Nick Jervik, for example, some of the Columbia folks, um, uh, Maria John, uh, Andre Decro, Daniel Morales, once they had completed an essay, they would come to El Monte, uh, they would collect moral histories, they would give a talk, and we would structure the talk in a way that it was open. In other words, we would sort of present it as almost like a work in progress, right? This is what we know about this particular aspect of El Monte, El Monte history. Um, and after that, we would invite folks to do oral histories to bring documents with them that we would scan, and that we would sort of continue to build the archive. And then we would dish those back to the authors, which would often revise what they had written based on some of this stuff. So in some ways, um, you know, the project starts uh, with that initial LA City Department of Cultural Affairs grant, but it grows and evolves in a lot of really unique ways that allow us to do this. And in some cases, um, we didn't do a lot of work. <laughs> and what I mean by that is in some cases, the authors themselves went out and found the archive. And this is the case with Stacey Macias, 
we knew that that we had done a good job of gender, right? That we had covered that pretty well, or, or we thought that we we covered it pretty well. You guys can, you know, the readers can argue, obviously disagree with us, but we also knew that we we had heard about the sugar shack, and we knew that if we didn't have it in there, that was going to be a huge hole, right, and a big missed opportunity. So we asked her if she could take that on, and, and to her credit, she found the folks to interview, and she did a lot of that legwork. Um, there's other cases like that too, but for the most part, right, this was a sort of very collaborative experience in which we tried to pick folks that we thought would be good to write this essay. Um, and perhaps what's also unique is if you look through some of the table of contents or the author bios, a lot of the folks that contributed were coming from Columbia. And part of that was the fact that I was at Columbia, um, uh, Danny was at Columbia, Ryan Reft did his MA at Columbia, Alex, you know, she got her PhD at Columbia. So in that sense, we, there was a sort of uh, a very sort of a very a, a huge spirit of collaboration with my cohort and folks above and below me at Columbia, which I think is which I think can <laughs> I should be careful here. I think that can be rare in grad school, right? This idea that you're collaboratively building something together, um, particularly at a place uh, that can often be very competitive. So that's kind of how we got these contributors. Um, Great. Well, I mean, I just love the idea uh, that, you know, with the whole public history initiative, the desire to uh, really expand the archive to, you know, and to create an archive to begin this, uh, you know, form of more expansive type of, you know, knowledge production that engages with the community, brings community academia together. There's there's journalists, right? There's artists all involved in this. I mean, there's a, there's a word that, or a phrase, I think, that's used in the introduction that's, uh, uh, was it uh, uh, disciplinary kind of promiscuity uh, or dis- to be disciplinary kind of like promiscuous in that way. So um, I think in, we use the term a lot, uh, you know, either interdisciplinary or intersectional, but I mean, that just real uh, intensive and, and, and meaningful effort uh, to bring in different styles, different skill sets, different perspectives uh, all under, again, this, this effort at uh, public history and knowledge production, archive creation. Um, I'm wondering, you know, Stacy and, and Daniel, if each of you, if you wouldn't mind, could you uh, tell us, perhaps beginning with Stacy, um, your connection and uh, you know introduction to this this project? And sure. So Romeo and Caribbean approached me like. Romeo said, um, I wasn't a part of the, that beautiful process, which I actually learned a lot for, uh, uh, learned a lot about the process, um, Romeo. So thank you for explaining some of that history. Um, I, I was not a grad student at, at Columbia, so I don't have those kinds of connections with folks, but it was, um, I think, you know, I, I met Caribbean actually when I was a grad student at UCLA. And so I happened to have attended one of the CMOP events and my partner who was who is much more active on social media had seen this announcement um, at the time I was living in Las Vegas teaching at the University of Nevada Las Vegas there and one of the times that I was in town happened to coincide with one of the events that they were hosting she invited me and lo and behold, it was this collective. And I thought, this is wild. It's South El Monte is in its name. And as someone who grew up in South El Monte, my dad worked across the street actually from where that event was held when it used to be, I think it was a Chinese restaurant. And 
I, of course, I went off to school. I actually did my undergrad at a small women's college in Lynchburg, Virginia, then came home, tried to establish, you know, life here and did UCLA grad school. Working within South El Monte, El Monte as a place, thinking about it critically as a space didn't ever come into my horizon of possibilities around doing research and work. Um, I think a lot of, like a lot of people who are queer and of color, we leave our communities. And so to find this space, to see what they were offering through this artistic and musical and poetic um, blending of cultural arts was really exciting. So I think in part, that's how some of the connections started and also via the earlier connection that I had with um, Caribbean, they reached out to me and asked me if I would write this story. And like I said, it hadn't really dawned on me that I would think about writing something that was almost like it was too close, right? Growing up, you know, within a few miles of the Sugar Shack, which is the name of the um, lesbian gay bar that I, I write about, it didn't dawn on me. And so they were both very helpful, um, Romeo and, and Caribbean, in hooking me up with the city clerk's office. And in particular, they had a few contacts there because obviously they had been working in a capacity formally with the city. So getting that sort of infrastructure and, and insight into the city's holdings, the city's official records was really crucial to being able to build this narrative and then working with finding folks through social networking sites like Facebook. Um, as I said, I've, I'm not a big social network user, but I, I found such value in accessing social networking sites that is what led me to the person who became my main contact then who opened the door to all these other contacts. Curiously, um, well, her name is Shelly um, Ponce. She's from San Gabriel Valley, went to Garfield, is very local, remains here. Curiously, she is not someone who is ident who identifies as queer or lesbian or gay, but she was very much um, ensconced in these communities because of her love of music and fashion. And so she connected me with a group of people who are related in, in uh, who are friends with her sister, and or two of her sisters, actually, if I'm remembering correctly, who both identify as lesbian and or bisexual. So she was really the key to being able to uh, connect the oral um, stories or the, the the stories that come from the personal reflections, the the memory recollections, sort of those um, embodied narratives that you get outside of the official city records and and record keeping. So pairing those together was really the work that I did, um, both enabled by Romeo and Caribbean and then my one contact, Shelley, to, to build out this story, which ended up being much more um, exciting and rich and, and full than I had imagined and has actually opened up some other uh, important, well, what I've built relationships with people along the way and also has led me to more insight and information about other little known bars, clubs, spaces that existed 
um, once upon a time in South El Monte, El Monte, and, and other east of east um, locales. I, c- I could say more but, uh, or about the actual content of the piece, but I'll, I'll pause and see if you have any questions. Great. No, thank you for that. Yeah, we'll, we'll get into the, the piece in just a little bit uh, more in a little bit more detail in, in a bit. Thank you. Um, Daniel, uh, your background, your connection, uh, and uh, introduction to this project. All right. Um, actually, through this project, I ended up learning a lot more about my own family's connection uh, to El Monte. I, had, I knew that uh, my family had lived there in the 70s and 80s, uh, but I had mostly grown up in Azusa. Um, so through this project, I found out that my family uh, had been in the city since the 1920s, um, something that uh, I didn't know before this project started. Um, that was part of uh, interviewing my own family and figuring out, um, linking a lot of the documentary records with sort of what, uh, what I could find out um, by asking around. Um, I first learned of the project you know, I'm not entirely sure when I, re- I first learned of the project. I, uh, somewhere around 2012, 2013, um, Romeo was, uh, started working on this, and he asked me to come uh, help him. And at the time, um, he was already uh, living in, in Southern California, and I was in New York, but I would visit my family um, every school break. Uh, come spend the time in California, so he wanted me to, to help him out with this, and so I agreed to do it. Um, around the same time, uh, Columbia received a good amount of money from the AHA as part of a project to increase uh, different types of skill levels and um, to, to do the non-traditional uh, historical projects. Um, at Columbia, this uh, the money ended up being used uh, student run. Students would propose projects that would then uh, be put forward, and so I uh, proposed a public history grant to go um, and do oral history interviews and work with community members as part of SEMAP. Um, and I, I got the grant, and over the next couple of years, we got three or four more. Uh, grants, small grants from that project from Columbia and then uh, from other sources at Columbia University that allowed different graduate students there and many others to work, to come to Los Angeles and work on this project. And uh, many others volunteered their time uh, and, and worked for free for the project. Um, uh, building off of earlier records, he asked me to, to write these, uh, this story on Hicks Camp. So I went on uh, try to f- uh, find a lot of what the historical uh, what existed in records, and so that meant going to the uh, um, there's a large oral history project that had been been done um, at one of the colleges um, at Whittier, right next to El Monte, as well as the Robert Fields papers um, and various other projects that had been done in the mid-20th century and early 20th century. And a lot of those included interviews for people who lived in the month at the time. So based on these, as well as uh, other records, I put together the original version of the essay. Um, as Romeo mentioned earlier, these essays often were uh, then presented to community members. Um, 
And I certainly got a lot of feet, uh, pushback, um, correctly so, uh, from that because I was way too reliant on the official record, uh, in building these. And I think it's, it showed the importance of going back to communities and working with communities, uh, when, uh, when working with this historical material. Um, part of that also meant going to the two museums, uh, working with La Historia. Um, the historical society, La Historia Historical Society uh, in El Monte, and the official El Monte Historical Society, which is right next to it, um, which is a museum that paints a very pioneer version of the history of El Monte. Um, and we uh, did an interview with uh, the curator of the museum, um, in which the, the curator described this as, as the first all-American town, um, almost uncritically, right? Um, which is one of the things that we, uh, that we wanted to push back on in, in this essay, um, in writing an alternative version of the history, and often building off of the work that many people had been doing themselves, like Historia, uh, had a, uh, was a, a collection of mostly... Um, Mexican people who had grown up in the city um, and having seen that, wanted to preserve their own history and not being uh, part of the official history. They created their own uh, society and their own institution, um, which is uh, the Bob Block way now. Uh, and, and that really became sort of the ground floor of the project, working with La Historia and then working with community members. Um, we would get uh, grants to bring in uh, other graduate students um, from uh, Columbia, but uh, other institutions as well. And they would spend time uh, in these community events. Um, we would have events where we would bring in as, uh, trying to invite as many members of the community as possible, work with institutions to do so. So uh, work with La Historia, work with schools, work with uh, senior citizen centers, um, or work with arts collectives, and we would have these events that would be geared towards different communities in and around the city and in different sites and around the city. Um, afterwards, we would do interviews. Um, so well, we would get recorded women and, and sit down with people. Um, over the next couple of months, we ended up collecting uh, dozens of interviews. I would say close to 100 interviews overall. Eventually, this became the archive, uh, which uh, is we apply for money to make an online archive. And so we've built a website around which uh, you can go and see a lot of the interviews that uh, the writers of the book use yeah, um, going forward. Great. Thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, you know, while both you and Stacy are were speaking, um, you know, I'm thinking more of uh you know for our non uh southern california you know audience what may be going through their mind is um you know where is el monte or el mani right why el mani why a book you know why a book on el mani um and to be all of which that case had to have been made at some point i mean beyond a public history project which is how this originates which is wonderful uh, this is published by, you know, a academic university press. Uh, and so in several ways, you know, you kind of have to right, 
raise, make an argument for the significance of this place that is, you know, probably, you know, most definitely like not very well known for people outside of Southern California, right? Um, just any thoughts or comments on that? Maybe beginning uh, with you, Romeo. Um, why should people, you know, see this as, as significant? You know, what, what story does this tell that is both unique to El Monte, but then also, right, important and part of the bigger kind of history of the region? Yeah, so perhaps I'll start with a confession, right? Which is that, you know, we, <laughs> we always said that El Monte matters, right? And if you go to El Monte, people are, have a lot of pride and it's sort of this underdog pride and they understand that they're important, but they maybe can't articulate it in a sort of academic sense or maybe even just a regular sense, right? So we went into this project with the argument that El Monte mattered. <clears throat> and we knew that El Monte mattered because of the scholarship, right? Uh, Matt Garcia, Stefan Leachin Stadium. Deborah Weber, uh, Gonzalez on Barry Strike. So there was these clear moments in El Monte history where El Monte became a flashpoint for LA history, for SoCal history. So there are these moments in the historiography where you see that El Monte matters. Um, and we had a hunch that El Monte mattered beyond those moments. Or perhaps a better way to put that is that if El Monte mattered in 33, if El Monte mattered in, um, you know, post-World War II with Leighton Stadium, if El Monte mattered with Toipurina, even though it wasn't called El Monte then, right? Um, there had to be something that's connecting these moments together. And what we ended up finding out was that El Monte, and this is where the project, the title comes from, right, is east of East LA, but that it's really sort of a a place in which all these different radical politics, both right and left, are being imagined and enacted, and a way in which they're connected to LA, to East LA, and provide a sort of entry point into the rest of the San Gabriel Valley and to the Inland Empire. So in that sense, part of the argument of the book is that you can't really understand L.A. without understanding El Monte. And that El Monte has been important throughout these 300 years for the history of SoCal, for the history of Los Angeles. And you know, I think Stacey Macias' piece makes a really clear argument around that. But um, I'll just give you one example, right, which is the El Monte boys. You can't really talk about 19th century California, 19th century L.A. SoCal without talking about the El Monte boys, which are essentially folks from the South that bring this very Southern violence and then act upon people of color. And they're essentially mob violence, right? Um, but they become sort of romanticized and heroicized throughout the 20th century. And they become these sort of like pioneer-like figures. But at the end of the day, they were they represent the violence that was used to create sort of white supremacy, but also to sort of wrestle control from the early, early settlers. So I think the argument here is that um, you can't understand the history of LA without the history of El Monte. And you can, people can find me on that. And that's okay, but Austin, read the book first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. Um, you know, I'm struck. I'm going to ask uh, you know both Stacy and Daniel to speak on this as well. Um, but I mean, I, I just loved it. I, I love that argument. I, I you know I love the. I really appreciate right going into a project of you know that that this space and this place matters. And, you know, uh, but it takes, a, it takes a lot of work, you know, it takes a, a lot of effort to actually help people see that. And, um, you know, just how this project formed, I think, is, is gone around at all the right steps. Um, I'm reminded of, you know, something that's mentioned in the introduction, something that I think about a lot, particularly my teaching uh, of history to my students is, is teaching them the power, right, of historical narratives. And that we think people and places matter because we're told that, you know, we're told by people whose interpretations and narratives get a lot of, um, you know, play. And um, it's not to say that those places aren't, but I think it's to say that, you know, it, 
it takes people taking that stance and saying, you know, this place does matter. It matters not just for the people that live there, um, but it also matters, you know, beyond that. You know, there's a an importance, you know, both of the local and to, you know, the global, I think of each place and, and of people. I think that that is a politic uh, I'll, you know, acknowledge of, you know, in history. That's a, you know, luckily I've been, I was trained by people that helped me to see that, but uh, it's, it's definitely something I very much appreciate, but I think it's an important thing to, uh, to note and bring out that, uh, you know, that power of historical narratives and, and why we, we believe and think things matter is, is often because we're told they do, right? And then that's repeated, right, so often. And so definitely, I mean, I'm in the camp El Monte Matters, um, and uh, I think this is just a, a phenomenal you know, step at uh, you know, expanding on, as you've already mentioned, right, moments of history that we do know, like the El Monte Berry strike, uh, uh, the you know, El Monte boys, et cetera. But, uh, you know, Stacey, Daniel, your thoughts on kind of this discussion on why El Monte matters. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yes, I think I, oh, Amalte is sort of the center of Southern California, but you don't think of it as the center of California, right? You think of urban Los Angeles, um, or other parts, a lot of the specific um, work that I was trying to do in, in my essays, link El Monte to the other places um, that meant ex- uh, explaining how you get a particular economy in the early 20th century of mixed urban agricultural, but also industrial, how migrations are linked to how, why people went there in large numbers in the early 20th century, but how those migrations are changing. So in California, changing this uh the Southwest changing Mexico at the same time, how you end up with a system of colonias, not just in uh, Southern California, but across California and across the Southwest where Mexicans are working in these unincorporated communities um, that often predate the traditional uh, city or suburbs that later displaced them. Um, and it goes further back right there early essays on Spanish colonialism, indigenous revolt, show that this is the place in which many of the themes of California and American history are playing out, and they're playing out in very particular ways in these particular spaces. So, um, it's a place that is both the subject of history where various uh, movements come or global movements, or in, uh, global industrialization, or global migration, are shaping this particular place. But it's also a place where people are coming and shaping their own destinies, right? Organizing um, for the Mexican Revolution, or organizing for strikes, or organizing for the Chicano movement in the 60s, or organizing for change in the most recent period. Um, that all history as a both 
uh, um, national and international, but the ways in which it happens and the ways you explain it is through the local, right? That it, it, often you can't explain national or international currents without having a good sense of local history. Great. Thank you. That's a great point. Um, Stacy. Sure. I, I would make the case too that El Monte matters and South El Monte matters as well, mm-hmm. um, both because they're distinct cities that have uh, there. Obviously there's a relationship between them, but they also are separate cities that often get conflated into one. And as a South El Monte native, um, I would make that case um, alongside um, Romeo's case and and the book's whole case as well. You know, that what's interesting about um, the title of the book, uh, East of East, is that it reminds us that there are sites, there are locations, there are places and spaces beyond the juggernaut of East LA. And I think the, you know, in East LA in the, in the imaginary right now, this mythic historic place that gets, um, you know, maybe some East LA haters would, would, um, or I would get accused of being an East LA hater by now saying that it has solidified its presence in the um, public imagination, definitely in the Latino, Latina um, immigrant imagination locally, and I, I would say nationally as well, and transnationally. Um, so I think when we think of East LA, we can definitely see the relationship to these other suburban, working class, highly um, diverse, multicultural, multi-ethnic communities, but making a claim to them and prioritizing them as a subject of study is what validates them and and elevates their presence and, and their importance. So the East of East that that title um, reminds us of is that there is a a particular presence um, to East LA and Boyle Heights and all the neighboring communities that have occupied our our imagination and actually now occupy our uh, public and um, pop cultural production. I I was thinking about the importance of... um, sure that the representation of these sites and places and the people within them historically and contemporaneously and at the same time that they become so locked or ossified in their representation that there's no out to it so um, if anybody knows that show Viva um, on stars or if we know um, Hentified we see these conversations now happening around gentrification in these communities and it's it's so important for these conversations and these representations to ascend into the mainstream. And at the same time, what they do is they become mythic that the communities that exist in, a, in and around them that have specific relationships to them get lost or get um, buried. And so 
this is, you know, one of the reasons why I think the communities east of East and why that title is so, um, why it just really uh, resonates as something powerful that what is, what is east of East? What is outside of that juggernaut? Oh, thank you for that. I really appreciate that, that insight. Um, and I, I want to take a few minutes, maybe if we can, is to you know, dive a bit deeper into each of the, the chapters that uh, uh, Daniel and, and Stacy contributed. Uh, maybe we'll start with uh, Daniel's chapter on, on Hicks Camp. Um, my thinking was, is, so Daniel, if you can tell us what, what do you learn in the process of, you know, writing about Hicks Camp? Uh, you know, what I was struck with is how similar the story of Hicks Camp is to, you know, barrio formation and, you know, ethnic Mexican Latino community formation, you know, pretty much all throughout Southern California. I mean, I, as I'm reading that, I'm, I'm thinking of my, you know, the place that I study, which is Orange County, and there's a very similar narrative to um, how so many of those uh, colonias and barrios form there. But I also, you know, in my readings, I, you know, I was thinking about San Bernardino, I was thinking about Riverside, I was thinking about Ventura County, you know, there, there are colonias and communities that are in all those places where, where you know, Hicks Camps to be, seems to be very representative of, you know, the, not only the, the Mexican-American, Latina, or Latin, Latinx experience in Southern California, but also, you know, how this is an, um, you know, a part of you know, urbanization in Southern California that, that, that in the academic literature is covered to some extent, but it is still um, not as well understood. You know, we talk about urban formation, urbanization in Southern California. It's you know, those of us within Latino and Latinx uh, studies understand the contribution, but it's still, I think, in the greater narrative of Los Angeles, of Southern California, the significance of colonias and barrios, uh, and the process that described in your story of, of uh, Hicks camps isn't again, is underappreciated and often ignored. Your thoughts, Daniel? I think that's absolutely true. Um, this book is both a work of uh, Latinx studies, um, a work of history, um, a book that's trying to bring issues of culture and, and history to the table, but it's also um, steeped in the world of urban history. Um, as well. And while there's been work by Latino scholars on explaining California and explaining this process of, we talk about colonias, that hasn't made much of an impact in the world of urban history. Um, if you look at works, even very recent works, there's still this dominant theme of the city, urban landscapes, and the suburbs, right? Or the suburbs and, and redevelopment um, come in and, and destroy, almost as if there wasn't anything there before. Um, and in doing so, I think they really do a violence to the history, um, adding to the type of violence that ended up destroying so many of these colonias um, across the landscape of California. This uh, particular camp, um, we, we chose it because it was the site of the very strike of 1933. Um, but we also use it as a stand-in for both uh, 
um, colonias of El Monte, and for this larger phenomena of these agricultural uh, colonias uh, more broadly. Um, this, uh, this camp wasn't unique, and it deals with the segregation that was endemic in the city of El Monte, where, for the most part, Mexicans were excluded from buying homes in the city proper. Instead, most of the workers who came to labor on the farms that ran to the city uh, went to these unincorporated uh, colonias. These were unregulated towns, often on private property. In the case of Hicks Camp, though um, others were on, on public property. Um, these were not officially part of the city, not officially incorporated, which meant no official city services. Um, these were uh, camps where people came to work there with the intention that they would leave. A lot of these camps were not originally created to be permanent housing. But they became permanent housing. You see this in the case of, of Hicks Camp, where po the population of, of the camp could go as low as about three or four hundred in the off season to as high as fifteen hundred at the peak of harvest. Um, a pattern that repeated itself from the nineteen tens through the nineteen forties and nineteen fifties. Uh, this camp um, was even still home to a major organizing effort. This is something that, in theory, shouldn't happen in the world of labor history. We often. People talk about site-specific um, organizing that you can't add that it takes being in a particular place to, to create the particular types of solidarities that are needed for people to organize around a union and, and go for a strike. That wasn't the case at Hicks Camp or the neighboring camps or the other camps in these areas where a lot of the people would move in and out, where the population was somewhat different every single season from uh, year to year. Um, Likewise, these uh, uh, traditional ways of thinking about uh, history would say that these areas would see the least organizing because they were these mobile uh, work camps, right? Um, yet the, the history of the strike itself uh, shows that that wasn't the case. That these uh, uh, the Canner Union and um, the strikes that happened at the 33 Berry strike was organized uh, against these currents and against the uh, immediate aftermath of the repatriation drives um, and the immediate aftermath of the Great Depression, um, really at the height of the Great Depression. Uh, it was part of a larger wave of strikes that went through Southern California um, and then Northern California that summer, uh, culminating in, in strikes uh, in the San Joaquin Valley. Um, it was part of a larger strikes movement that uh, went on from there. Um, Hicks camps continued to be a place, even after the, the defeat of these organizing efforts, people continued to live there. And through the 1950s, it became a major source of Bracero workers coming um, to live there. By then, there was a, a second or perhaps third generation of people who had grown up in these camps, and they began to take on a more sense of being a permanent community there. A lot of the interviews we did were with people who had grown up in the camps as they existed in the 40s and 1950s, where they saw um, camps that were both more permanent than before, more permanent housing, um, perhaps gravel roads, but still outside of the political 
um, economy of the area, um, uh, not necessarily integrated into the city of Amalte or integrated into uh, Southern California in, in the larger sense of the term. In starting in the 40s, but really accelerated in the 1950s, it was efforts for urban redevelopment. And often these uh, unincorporated towns became the target of, of this, right? And the, um, the creation of freeways, the creation of suburbs, the redevelopment of the land um, tried to push out these communities the way they exist. And eventually that's what happened to Hicks Camp. Um, well, some of the others. That's not what happened to all of the camps. Some places uh, did a, a more gradual transition into a regular neighborhood of the city. Um, in many of those uh, cases, there was quite a bit of displacement as well. Um, but people remember what life where was like in these camps. Um, and they kept uh, meeting with each other. They kept forms of community alive. Um, in the case of Almonte, that meant the uh, uh, the La Historia Society, which became sort of a depository of, of a lot of these lived experiences in these places. And for me, it was very important to, re, uh, to recast that history, not as just a lost history, something that came before the creation of the modern suburb, but really something that was central to the creation of California and its history and uh, what it became in years afterwards. No, exactly. I think, and that's very much, I think, how, how uh, you know, you see it as you understand more and more, right? The, the role and the place of, of colonial barrio formation. I mean, that, you know, you mentioned so many things there. I mean, the, the type of segregation, the type of urban planning, the type of, you know, intentional municipal, you know, neglect that goes into all of I mean, this is a key story to not just uh, Greater El Monte, but to Southern California broadly, I mean, to, and to a lot of parts of, you know, the West, particularly the Southwest, uh, what we call greater uh, Mexico. Um, Stacy, how about uh, your piece, if particularly, you know, the, the story around Sugar Shack, you know, how does that not only reshape the history of, of greater Monte, but also, I mean, the region itself? Sure. I think the thing that the, the Sugar Shack piece does as a result of having been able to find folks to speak to directly and pair that with the official documentation through the city clerk in El Monte was realizing this longer history of self-identified uh, gay women and men. And I use gay explicitly as that's how many of the, the folks that I spoke with identified themselves, um, a longer history of gay community formation within the east of East LA areas that involve relationships to bars outside of um, El Monte and South El Monte, but also um, connect them in a way that, sorry, I lost my mic. Um, that connect them in a way that we wouldn't originally have imagined because we think of perhaps those bars, uh, Reds in Boyle Heights and Plush Pony 
in El Sereno, East LA, we think of those as the, the bars that sit on the outer limits of West Hollywood. So West Hollywood as the main gay LA um, historically, the, the place that attracts the most um, gay tourists or, or locals, um, you know, from all over. So to, to resituate El Monte and the the sugar shack in relationship, not to West Hollywood, but to these two bars, East LA and um, El Sereno, it gives us a different glimpse into a community and a history that often is it, it's on the fringe and it doesn't start with them. So I thought that was a really important um, piece, uh, an important um <laughs> as a result of getting this name, the East Side Circle, that one of the interviewees was able to um, pluck from her memory and, and say it, share it with such authority that this was their route, the East, Side, the East Side Circle route that they took, was pretty astounding to me that there was a set of cultural practices, a, a set of places that were, that were queer, that were um, Chicano, Latino, Latina specific, that didn't, where West Hollywood didn't even really enter their imagination. So it really shifts the, the map, like literally shifts it. Um, and the starting point then becomes these locations that often get looked at in the, the aftermath or the afterthought. It's kind of like, when you listen to um, you listen to uh, NPR or a local radio station, and they say they're giving a recommendation for a restaurant or a, a theater or play or a site, and they say, "But you have to go all the way out to the east side. You have to go all the way out to the 605 freeway. You have to take the 60, right?" So you already know that their position. And imagining their listener as situated in the West Side. And so looking at these stories and, and the, the group of women that I was able to speak to who generously shared with me their history, they, they were already starting from the East Side. And I think that is one of the, the contributions or one of the interventions that their, their history provides. Thank you. It, it's um, reading your chapter, Stacy, made me think so much of about the importance of place, uh, you know, in, in in the development of, of people's culture, of or identities, of of how we build relationships, you know, that that have such deep meaning. I mean, the subtitle includes uh, of your uh, of your or not the subtitle, but the title itself is you know, a gay bar, some familia, and Latina butch femme. Um, and really, that's so much what place does for us, right? Um, it, it creates, you know, a ground upon which relationships can be built, upon which deep meanings and associations uh, can be established. Um, so I really appreciated how you, you paint that picture for us and, and again, try to help us to, uh, you know, mentally map and see the world as it existed uh, for these women, um, at least in regards to their their social practices and, uh, you know, their attempts to 
again, not, not just understand themselves, but to, to really just build relationships. Um, and, uh, and so anyways, I mean, yeah. just a phenomenal job at that. Thank you. And I'll, I, if I can just interject one last thing, that um, part of the intervention that I think I was really invested in in attempting um, to provide as well into these narratives around the gay bar, um, the requisite gay bar, right, as this premier locale that um, gay people find and build alternative familia in, is that what was so essential and what I think needs to be understood and researched further is that biological family is important to queer of color communities and these communities are often cast as already always homophobic, transphobic, um, that they don't have any tolerance for sexual and gender difference or gender, sexual and gender non-normativity. And for as long as I worked in these communities, it has always been the case that biological family, mama, moms, um, tias, uh, cousins, brothers, you name it, have actually been included in some of the social activities, some of the cultural practices of these um, queer LGBT identified people. And and that is such an important um, piece of our history that I think often gets written out of the story of uh, our communities or also imagined um, as, as, our, our, our familias have already cast us out, right? We've betrayed them via our sexuality and our gender, so they are not involved in our lives. And so this, th- these women affirmed again and again how essential biological families were to constructing their, their social lives. So it was both sets of families, and I, I, I just really wanted to emphasize that. No, thank you for making that point. I think that is so crucial right i think um uh in regards to reshaping again that narrative particularly that that is told about you know ethnic communities you know communities of color and their response you know to the lgbtq community that it's just much more complex you know right um than uh i think has the broader narrative that gets told you know is mostly a people that is you know stuck in traditional culture and are intolerant right of um uh, you know, of family members that don't fit a mold when it's all histories, all people are so much more complicated, you know, than that. So absolutely, uh, definitely. Thank you. Thank you for making that point and for bringing that out and for having that as part of this, this important chapter and project. Well, um, I, I hate to have to wrap this up, but uh, I promised all of you, I try to keep us on, on time. I do want to give uh, just each of you a minute, if you wouldn't mind telling us, you know, moving forward, um, what are, you know, some other projects, what's the next thing uh, that you're working on? Obviously, this book was just published, so you're, you're you know, as much as you can are trying to promote it uh, within the constraints of uh, COVID-19 and the coronavirus. But um, uh, what else uh, do you all got going on right now? Maybe let's start with you, uh, Romeo, and uh, then we'll move on to Stacy and Daniel. Yeah, well, thanks for having us. Um, appreciate uh, you making the effort, particularly as everyone struggles to, to balance life again, right? Life and work. Um, I would just uh, so this has nothing to do with my like academic work in the sense that um, it doesn't overlap with my dissertation. It doesn't overlap with my research. <laughs> so perhaps I'll just talk a little more about the way we imagine the book. And, and you know, we open or we, we, in the introduction, there's this whole thing about talent in the past and the ways in which power and talent is work within history. 
And a big goal of the project has really been to center community throughout the historical process. So the community is supposed to be at the center of the archive building, the storytelling, and also trying to find radical new ways to experience both primary and secondary sources. So in that sense, um, the book may be done, but the project's not done. So one of the goals moving forward is to work with educators to integrate the book into the curriculum at the local high school. We started doing some of that work, but also to find new ways to share these histories and these stories. And I think my return to LA, our return to LA, me and Caribbean, uh, will really help us to further think about what kind, how should this book exist in our community? So a big part of what's next for me is to revamp the digital website, um, sort of upload everything, and to start really working with local community members to get this book into the schools, into the colleges. Thank you for that. And I think that's such an important part of not just, I mean, that's obviously the, the, the around the origins of this project. I mean, it's, it's not as if this, uh, right, you know, CMAP, uh, you know, originated, I don't know, you can tell me, you can correct me with it originated with the idea of you know, creating an academic book that was probably something that happened later, right? This is much more of a community focused approach. But uh, my bigger thought is, I think it's just more of the importance of, you know, these narratives to you know, the community and being used indeed in the K through 12 curriculum, which, um, you know, is, is very much accessible. Uh, I think the, not just the length of the essays, you know, they are, they're brief, but they, they are in depth, you know, and so there's, I think there's something in there for uh, a lot of folk, whether it's just community members, whether it's, you know, at the K through 12 educational setting, or if it's in academia, um, there's very much a, a, a lot of many, several ways in which uh, I think the, this this particular work can be used, and as you mentioned, the project continuing to grow. So I'm very much glad to hear about that. Uh, Stacy. So the projects that I'm working on right now are, I would call them like sister projects to this. And originally I was looking at um, representations of queer of color, in particular queer Latino, Chicano um, representations in popular media, in film, in literature. And one of the um, sites where I was looking at this work is in the work by Adelina Anthony in her film, Bruising for Vessels. So in that film, um, she prioritizes looking at a relationship between uh, a, a woman who is from San Antonio and comes to live in LA and has this traumatic history, but finds community locally in Los Angeles. And so part of what that uh, film captured was the necessity to, to highlight our stories increasingly through whether it's film or literature, or other cultural arts forms to keep doing that. And so writing about that was a way to also bring more uh, visibility to the work that she and other cultural artists are are making either visually or through through liter through film. Um, so th the sister projects that have grown though out of the Sugar Shack piece um, that were inspired by originally looking at um, Adelina Anthony's Bruising for Vessels film, because it took place in East LA and there's a lesbian bar scene, you know, a lot of these lesbian bars are are closed. Or actually I don't really think that one exists anymore. Maybe traveling sites um, so Reds and Plush Pony would be added to that list. Um, they both closed within the past five, um, seven years. I've been having um, challenge 
challenges finding information about them. Um, the Sugar Shack was actually, in some ways, easier to find information on. And I don't know if, in part, it's because it it's within the city of El Monte, you know, smaller city, less bureaucracy to tend to. But um, I'm working on looking to do some sort of the same storytelling that I did with the Sugar Shack piece with the Reds and Plush Pony, which are, again, these two bars that exist more firmly in our imagination publicly, and yet there's little written. There's practically nothing about them. Laura Aguilar, the photographer um, who famously um, photographed a plush pony uh, club attendees in this beautiful series and who tragically passed about two years ago and had her work shown at the Vincent Price Art Museum in uh, East L.A., connected to East L.A. City College. Um, she perhaps is one of the few that documents the actual club goers, but there's nothing about the places themselves. So I'm really trying to dig up some of that material now. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. Uh, Daniel, your work? Um, thank you. Well, the Cement Project is definitely continuing. Um, and I, we've been working on uh, building up the website, um, getting more interviews up, and we hope to. Uh, we have, we've put we have a lot more material than uh, we've been able to put up onto the website. But our hope is to turn the website into a portal in which people could access uh, interviews and documents um, and begin to make use of it uh, themselves. Not only the curated essays that we have here, but to go. Um, there and, and write and make new interpretations um, of the past. This work was not original. Uh, was originally separate from my dissertation and not included uh, in there, but it's ended up shaping uh, my academic trajectory enough that I went back and have uh, really done a lot of major writing of my work. Uh, in, in incorporating and expanding on a lot of the work that we did uh, here. Um, and to that end, I'm in the process of finishing up a, a monograph on uh, the creation of the structures that guide and shape migration from Mexico to the United States in the early 20th century. Uh, the last Thing that I'm working on is the uh, where you where you work ends up shaping what you do uh, in uh, going forward, and in that case, um, I had no intention or no uh, um, originally no intention of working in Virginia, um, mm -hmm. but now that I'm here, I've realized wait, there's a there's a very large Latino community in Virginia. Um, uh, which came uh, as a very pleasant surprise when I came to work in Harrisonburg. Uh, and that's really become a lot of my life in the past three years, where um, I've worked with in collaboration with other faculty at James Madison University, um, especially in anthropology, sociology, uh, and political science, um, and communication, and working uh, with the Latino and immigrant community there, um, to create the project uh, Immigrant Harrisonburg, which is a large um, 
public uh, initiative. It's both public history, but also public um, outreach to other communities in uh, assisting people in, in uh, on their stories, as well as uh, empowering community members to, to shape the way in which uh, they speak back to academia. Um, and that project's continuing, um, and we're hoping to expand it to other parts of Virginia. Great. Thank you for that. And I just wanted to real quickly plug, because you've mentioned the um, website uh, a few times. Um, uh, Romeo, what's the, uh, can you give us the, the exact website? Is that this one that I'm seeing? Uh, the cmartsposse.wordpress.com? Is that the one that's being referred that's to? That's a WordPress that is embarrassing because we haven't published anything in decades. <laughs> um, the, the digital archive, which is sort of in progress right now, and it doesn't quite overlap with the book, but the idea is that it'll overlap with the way in which the book is organized so that folks can sort of go and look at different sections, different exhibits. So theoretically, at some point, we'll work with Stacy um, to really document some of those stories and maybe expand on them, and they can be in the archive as well. But the, the current digital website that exists right now is just cmapeastofeast.com. So S-E-M-A-P, okay. eastofeast.com. And I th- I would say that maybe like 30% of the materials up there, but there are some oral histories. And again, the idea is that when folks use this or when they want to use this launching pad, they can read the book, dive into the archive, or vice versa, dive into the archive and then dive into the book. Great. Great. Well, uh, Romeo, Stacy, Daniel, thank all three of you. Thank you again for uh, coming on to New Books Latino Studies, for sharing uh, just think this great uh, transformative work, truly, I think, radical in, in several ways, but very important. I mean, uh, so thank you again for your time. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you very much. Thank you.